Michael, are you in the mood for sparkling wine? Always. <laughs> this podcast is now proudly sponsored by Valdoca Prosecca Superiore Valdobiedene. I'm sure I'll get it right by the time the <laughs> run is done. Valdobiedene. Uh, no, uh, yeah, I can't either. say it. Anyways, we would just like to very much thank our sponsor for helping us keep the lights on, keep the hosting costs down. And unless explicitly said, the content in this podcast is not paid. Let's run the music. You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hello, Michael. Andre, how are you? I'm a little uncomfortable right now we're in one of those places where you and i are not welcome i mean that's it they (laughs) refer to us as gentlemen but it's usually prefaced with you're making a scene yes and then they escort us out correct this is the kind of place where they uh, where you were invited twice and the second time is uh, to apologize (laughs) uh we are at toka uh the ritz carlton it's tiff and um sitting across the table from us is not a movie star no well, he could be. Look at that. Look at that jawline. <laughs> we are joined by uh, Gottfried Maki of Bokenhutzkluf. Bokenhutzkluf. Bokenhutzkluf Winery. No, you got to get, got to get the Kluf. I think that impressed you. Yeah, Kluf. And uh, but, I mean, your pronunciation is, is perfect. I mean, there we go. I mean, I mean, I've I tell you, I've, I've I've done my traveling, and you know, we have to sell wine and. Um, it's not every day you meet somebody who gets it right on the first time. So, well, so thanks, I you. appreciate that. I know after spending the summer like butchering Italian and you know the one language I can't get, and I mean every time you open your mouth and something French comes out. Well, that's uh, that's what I'm. I'm trying to learn a little bit of Italian at the moment, and everything I don't know, I fill in with French. So it's really funny to listen to me speak Italian these days. All right, so so you do have a like you're working with a winery, the chief winemaker of. Bokenhutz Kluf, and it's not a winery where you're going to necessarily see that name on the shelf. Your your winery has a lot of brands, things that people would be familiar with. Um, I think we should actually get wine in our glass right away, and then we'll get into it, because we actually have quite a few wines to to go through. And one of the reasons I'm excited to to talk to you is it's not just the usual suspects that I think the people listening to this podcast will be very familiar with the first couple of uh, wines that we will be talking about. And as we get later into the podcast, we'll we'll be dealing with some stuff people might not be familiar with. Well, I think the the first one definitely uh, is, is um, uh, is a name that people recognize, which is the Wolf Trap. Uh, which people may not realize is Bokenhutzkluf, and um, uh, the uh, they've they've come up with a new. It, I I thought the white that uh, we were poured was the usual, but uh, Godfrey, why don't you tell us what uh, makes this uh, so unique and and uh, different to start with? Yeah, um, yeah. So this is new. We uh, launched this wine exclusively uh, in Canada. Um, it's a, it's a, I guess the idea comes from the Ante de Mer in France where you, where you kind of tend to blend Sauvignon and, and Sémillon. So this is wine is uh, 60% Sauvignon Blanc and 40% Sémillon. Um, quite a cr- nice and fresh and aromatic style. A um, lot of, uh, lot of uh, fruit purity and perfume and just trying to create something that's wonderful for the summer months and something that's kind of great with shellfish. Um, you know, traditionally we always had our Wolf Trap brand, which I think has been kind of very well established in Canada. It's always been a Mediterranean-inspired wine um, with much more oxidative winemaking, Chenin, Grenache, Blanc, Vigny. But here we wanted to do something new and fresh and different. And um, yeah, so let's see how it goes. But I, I'm, I'm quite excited about this. Well, when I, when I first uh, smelled it, I went, oh, you've, you've made a Sauvignon Blanc. And uh, you immediately said, wait, 
It's 60% Sauvignon Blanc with a little bit of that Semillon in it. And I think that Semillon gives it that roundness at the finish, whereas the Sauvignon Blanc like, gives it that nice fresh grapefruit kind of guava uh, note uh, right in the mid-palate. Yeah. See, and, and for me, I'm still getting quite a bit of the sort of asparagus. Grassy like, note, like yes. Grassy, grassy mm-hmm. note. And, and to me, this is still leaning a little towards New Zealand. Um, but I did note, like, if you're looking for New Zealand at a good price point, this is $15.95. We're not being paid to do this podcast, by the way. I need to get that out there. Um, there is a nice mineral note that I think you don't find in Marlboro right along the center back on the finish. Well, I, I get that. I get what you're talking about, the grassiness. That's what That was the giveaway to me on the Sauvignon Blanc. But, I mean, what I liked was the palate here. And I, and I got past the nose quickly to get to that palate where the grapefruit and the guava and the, and the, and the, and the nice, almost, I don't want to say it's a thick palate, but, I mean, mm. it's, got a, it's got a nice rounded finish to it. I think it's going to find a lot of friends uh, in Ontario. I'd agree with that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you, how you made the wine? Yeah, um, so <laughs> it's interesting because, I mean, we obviously can taste different wines that we all have different methods. Yeah, yeah, it's quite like kind of classic. This style of wine, you find a lot of the styles in South Africa. It's, uh, you know, it's obviously very um, what we call cold fermentations, low temperature ferments. Um, we never pick the, the, the fruit that ripe, so it's always kind of very low alcohol style wines. And purely because as a company, we don't do certification. Um, we like mouthfeel, we like finish, we like uh, wines that's quite vinous and that's quite drinkable. And that's why we, we tend to always add Semillon to Sauvignon because it breaks a little bit of that kind of grapefruit acid that, you know, that malignness that you get in Sauvignon that can sometimes be a bit heavy, you know, that green apple that you sometimes find, um, you know, that then you have to really um, drink Sauvignon in a very different way. So for us, that's kind of why we, we make the wine into so. Um, the aging is only on fine lease in stainless steel tanks. We don't we don't add any concrete or, or oak to this. Um, I think we'll we'll talk more about oak and, and concrete, but later on. Um, so this is really just a very pure varietal example. Um, you mentioned something about a bit about that lemongrass and that asparagus, and you spoke about guava. Yeah, I mean that is textbook South African souvenir. I mean, that's kind of what we get in a lot of our souvenirs we make in the Cape, is that characteristics, especially when you're farming souvenirs in the coastal regions. Um, you get a lot of that type of characters. Yeah, yeah I like this. I like this wine. I'd, I'd, if it was summer still, but it seems that summer is slipping away so so quickly. Listen, uh, listen back home, it's minus two degrees. When people ask me why you can and I say I'm here for the weather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, I mean, you're slipping into spring though, aren't you? Yeah, we've got spring, but I mean, it seems like the um, winter has, has become later. I mean, it's, okay. it's shifting on. Um, I mean, this morning we've got snow in the mountains, funny, and I mean, we're actually in, in butt break at the moment. Okay. So it's it's not fantastic. Um, I think uh, we might find a bit of unevenness in the in the vineyards this year, so we'll have to see how it goes. And um, the coastal regions, especially Chardonnay, I mean, it's, um, I think some farms have already done their first uh, vineyard spray already. Oh, geez. Okay. Yeah, so it's quite interesting, the vintage. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I guess let's move to the next one, and then I have some questions just about vineyard management. You talked about Chardonnay being planted on the, the coastal side. You've talked about uh, not acidifying, which, if you're in a hot climate, will definitely present a challenge. And I, I think that 
that might explain why the style of the Sauvignon Blanc is leaning a little bit more towards some of the, the savory elements. By no means am I saying it's under underripe, just saying it's, it would make sense that if you're looking for balance in your fruit, you want to keep the acid as much as possible. Um, how are you preparing for climate change, and do you find you're looking for sites with higher altitude to maintain acidity? I think... Um I think this is where, when you look at the whole portfolio of Bukunat's Kloof, um, you see it's kind of t- quite a diverse area of wines. But everything we do is geographical. So um, when we work with, we, we work with certain specific varieties in very specific regions, and obviously regions where it's quite well suited. Um, and um, so, I, I mean, I think since uh, 2000, end of 2015, 16, I think the effect of global warming is real. I mean, it's something we experience a lot, like everybody else, I guess. Um, very sporadic uh, weather conditions. Um, you know, when it rains, it rains too much. When it's hot, it's too hot. And when it's dry, it's too dry. Um, but it had a significant effect on the way we look at vineyards, the way we do our farming today. Um, I think the biggest emphasis has been um, soil management. Um, in South Africa now, like mulching, high carbon, Oxygen in your soils, microorganisms, those type of things have become a real important part of farming today. Mm-hmm. You know, you need, you need to protect your soil when it's raining too much, so there's no erosion. In the summer months, you need to get your, your carbon up, you need to get your organism up, you need to cover your soils so that it doesn't dry out too quickly, doesn't get too decompacted. Um, so these things have become real. Um, with Bukenhout's Kluwer for all our properties, um, we've gone a big shift to organic farming now. Um, we've converted most of our properties now, um, and that's been an important step for us. We're just re-looking and thinking very differently. For instance, in the very, very dry regions where we farm, Swartland region, um, you must remember there's regions of a rainfall that doesn't get much more than 300 mils of rain a year. It's super dry. Um, we do have irrigation systems that's kind of fine drip irrigations. We put probes into the soils to monitor soil more. Um, moisture, etc. Um, so there's, I think the shift has been very much a, a very big environmental shift, but also then as I'm also we're thinking we're looking at things very more scientifically. Um, I think a lot of plantings we do today, um, we look very close at, at the soil, we analyze that, we get people in who know more than we do um, to understand what is the best rootstock selection, what is the best clonal selection, clones especially as clones that have been in South Africa for a long time. Um, very important part of that selection today is that you work with virus-free plant material. We've got a wonderful nursery in South Africa that's gone so much research, and they guarantee it. And then we go through a five-year process since planting, where every year we actually take out and select the vines, eliminate the vines that are showing signs of virus, interplanting again with virus-free to try and keep healthy vineyards for the future. Wow. Um, so there's a lot of that stuff going on. Because the reality is in South Africa, um, vineyards are in decline. Vineyards are in decline, and um, we need to think more seriously about the way we farm because it, it has to justify to plant a vineyard today. Um, it's expensive to plant a vineyard, um, and yeah, so you know, that's there's a, we can talk about this for a long time, I but there's we, well, we some amazing um, stuff happening at the moment. Yeah. You, you went nerdy to a level that we usually reserve for people like. Brian Schmidt or Craig McDonald, Thomas Batchelder, Thomas Batchelder, <laughs> when they visit the podcast, great winemakers in Ontario. 
But you went there right away with clones and rootstock. No, I think that's very important. I, yeah, I thought I, that was. I thought the, the especially the part about looking for virus free no, material. I, I, I would is love to pick, very very important. I, I would actually love, love us to, to pick up on that, but we should probably talk about what's in our glass since we have one, oh. two, three, four, five, six, seven, yeah. eight. Yeah, eight wines. So this is actually this is Brook and Hutzkluf's uh, like flagship wines uh, with their with their um, the seven chairs on the f- label. I'm not bu- I'm not taking your bait. bait. I'm going to do it my way. Well, no, but that's how you pronounce it. Then. That's fine. Okay, I'm, I'm doing it the anglicized way. Okay. So uh, and and Gottfried understands. Um, so I, I've always liked this label. I know you're always a big big talker on labels, but I'm okay I, with the label. I, I've always liked this label. But this is one label that we don't usually see on uh, on the LCBO shelves. Mm. Um, we are going to get uh, obviously Wolf Trap. Uh, we get two, and there's definitely two more that we see uh, regularly on the LCBO. Uh, label. Do, do we want to go to labels? What, why why is the label? Yeah, why I, is I, the label I, I, a mix of chairs. Yeah, I think maybe maybe there's a good way just to introduce Bukinas Kluf as a, as a winery because Bukinas Kluf was only established um, under the new democracy, so. Um, in uh, in first vintage only in 1996 um, and the valley where we are this little valley is called Bukenaut's Kloof and a Bukenaut is a Cape Beach tree and this Cape Beach is indigenous tree to our area and Kloof refers to a ravine and this ravine was full of these trees and and the, the area was actually quite well known um, in that time about the mid 18th century where the timber was used for making these new classic chairs of the Cape Dutch colony of the old VOC time. And that's very symbolic chairs of that era in the Cape. And that's why we have them on a front label. And there are seven chairs because they were seven friends who became partners in the company of Bukenaut's Kloof. Um, today, um, the managing director um, is Mark Kent. He was the original winemaker of the company. Um, he's today very involved still with me with the winemaking and everything is a absolutely amazing guy he's i think he's like 52 or 53 now uh, he's like he's an absolute wine wine guy and um he already in 1997 made old vine semion i mean he went and found his old vineyards and said she's these are amazing ones and he loved white bordeaux so he loved uh, drinking old wines from pezak and graf and that was his inspiration um today obviously these old vine projects it's very fashionable but in those days, he just made it because he thought they make excellent wine. They were so different. Um, so the vineyards we work with this um, was planted in 1902. So that's one of our oldest white-producing um, vineyards, or the oldest white-producing vineyard in the Cape. The other two vineyards we farm was planted in 1942 and 1956. And then um, I know people tend to always add a bit of Sauvignon to Semyon. For acidity, we don't do that because we feel then it, it's against the old vine concept and idea. Yeah. Um, so I find also an old vineyard um, of Muscat Alexandria that was planted in also in about 1902. And I put about 2 to 3% um, in, um, which we'd obviously do in kind of amphora and old cl- um, clay vessels. And, um, and yeah, so... Um, the wine is always like about one third in concrete eggs. I don't know if you've seen these concrete eggs. Yes. Oh yeah. So yeah. we do. A, we like the idea of concrete eggs, and about two thirds in French barrique. And elevage is always quite long, about fourteen months. And clearly, so it's, it's made oxidatively, but because of that, the wine actually becomes so stable that it has wonderful aging potential. And for us, it's really about showing that waxiness and that kind of lanolin and show that, that flintiness and, you know, the character of these old vineyards. Yeah, I think this is a fun wine, 
but I, I mean, to me, it almost tastes more like a, a Northern Rhone, like a, a Roussillon, or sorry, yeah. a, a Roussan or a Marsan, yeah. just with the oak influence and like yeah. there's a lot of fruit on the nose, but yeah. on the palate, a little bit more closed mm-hmm. off. I, I found it uh, a little fat in the mouth. Yeah. Um, and did uh, you like it, or was it too fat? Wh- no, I, I was working on it still. Um, I'll work on it over lunch. Um, uh, what I what I did like was that kind of uh, spicy acidity that seemed to uh, you know prickle at the sides of the yeah, tongue. Yeah. That was that was really interesting on that finish. Uh, so it was definitely a wine that that uh, needs a little bit more uh, experimentation with. Maybe uh, maybe some food, maybe something. But uh, there was something to to that wine that I, I kind I think, of. Enjoyed. I think just some age would probably bring it into could, balance. Could like too. like I did I did find quite a bit of the the oak influence, but. Um, like there, there wasn't a lot of wood tannin. There was more wood flavor, and I think it'll settle down with a, a bit of time. Yeah, look, I mean, it's 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 always um, a very a gastronomic style of wine. Um, we tend to have quite a, a following for older vintages of this, which obviously is important to us. I mean, you obviously want that with wines like this, you want that tertiary flavors to come through at a later stage and show that real kind of. Lanolini and waxiness that makes uh, old wine semion interesting. So yeah, but for us it's also when you do a wine like this, you know, it's about kind of also about capturing your landscape and showing it. You know, because I, I think that's the story of 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 old vineyards. Yeah, definitely. And then we're moving on to um, we're just going to finish up with the whites here before we get to your your question. I think you said you had one. Well, I just thought it might be worth revisiting how like rootstocks and clones are, are having an impact on on yeah. climate change. But uh but while we were finishing up on the semi I took a, a sneak of this uh Cap Maritime Chardonnay. Yeah, I'm not surprised that you saw the Chardonnay and your mouth started to water like crazy. I'm surprised your hair didn't fall out waiting for it. <laughs> um so yeah, I thought we weren't talking like that anymore. What uh Godfrey tell us about a little bit about this uh Cape, no, Cap, Cap Maritime, yeah. the, the, uh, the, which is a label I've never seen from the winery before. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's it's the beauty of making wine in the Cape. If you, if, if, if I'm at the winery, I go one hour in any direction, I'm in a different climate. And so it's about just over an hour's drive from the winery. We, um, we found this piece of land in a, in a valley of an, in a valley called the uh, Yemon Arda Valley, which means heaven on earth. Um, and this little property is about, I would say, about three three kilometers from the from the ocean, um, at an altitude just over three hundred uh, meters, um, and a lot of sandstone and there's some patches of clay. Um, and we started planting Chardonnay there and a little bit of Pinot. I've got today about fifteen hectares there that that I'm farming. Um, and yeah, and, and I wanted to do a project that's based purely on Pinot and Chardonnay. I mean, I guess like a lot of winemakers. Uh, uh, we've all got a, a special place for, for Burgundy, uh, and I've always loved Pinot and Chardonnay, and I really wanted to do something special and find a place where I could do that, do it. Um, and yeah, so the wine is obviously made in a, a style where we do obviously barrel fermentations like everybody else. We, I think what's unique about the wine is that we do some mallow, but, uh, it's about 60% mallow, um, but I do mallow at a, quite a, a low temperature, so... And I don't get too much of that heavy butteriness and diacetyl. I keep a bit of the austerity in the wine. Um, Elevage is up to 14 months. And, yeah, it's a, it's a cool style. It's a new style. It's, a, it's different, and it's been a lot of fun. I think I've written it down one, two, three, four times nice. 
Yeah, because uh, there's a nice butteriness to it. There's a there's a nice fruit factor here. There's but, a nice richness to it. There's there's nice acidity. I don't know why I got stuck in the word nice. I just uh, was there. It's, it's easy to drink. Like it, that's a, that's a really it's a nice shard. Like it's a nice chardonnay. It's it's not it, too much of anything. It, it it is fascinating because this does remind mm. me quite a bit of what I like about Niagara Shard. Mm. Like there is a really great mineral note. Right down the middle of this, like like just like a beautiful chalkiness that are, are keeping it focused, but like the acids are a little lower, so it's got me thinking New World style. Yeah. So like this, this almost feels like what the Californians wish they were doing. On, yeah. on the other hand, I it uh, took me a third or a fourth sip, but the acidity really starts to come out. Oh, on, it's, on it's, that. it's by no means off balance. It's just it's a little bit less crisp than mm. you would get from Chablis, for example, yeah, or from yes. a cool vintage in, in yeah. Niagara, but it's. It also doesn't feel like a hot vintage wine. Like this is mm. just, it's a really interesting expression of Chardonnay. Yeah, it's, it's, I really like this. I really like this version of Chardonnay. You said it first. I didn't even say if I liked it or not. Well, I said it was nice. So well, it must mean I must like it somehow. This is really well done. But yeah, I, I really you. liked your 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 note about the chalky minerality. Oh, but that's, I got, that's what the, I, I think. That's what pulls this mm. wine together. And like, what I first didn't like about the wine was I thought, well, there's no acidity here. But it, as I said, it took a few sips to really have it come right out. Yep. No, this is and um, the uh, the vanilla and spice notes from the barrel is mm. so subtle in mm. this. Like, this is a really cool wine. This would be a mm. really fun wine to. Poor blind for some people have yeah. them guess where it comes from because I don't know if anyone would say South Africa, but I don't know if anyone would would say necessarily Burgundy or Chile or California. Like this is yeah, such a like it tastes like so. Anyways, I'm just excited about the wine. Yeah, no, I, I think it's I think it's really nice. And you actually just noticed you had it in a bigger glass, so I'm going to give it a little splash in the bigger glass before we before we move on to the to the Pinot. So just to see if <laughs> maybe. Maybe, yeah, well, well, maybe Michael, something happens. Well, Michael's revisiting. Yeah, you were talking a little bit about rootstock, and we don't need to necessarily get into the specific numbers and letters of what yeah. makes rootstock. But what is the experimentation that you're doing with rootstock, and how does different rootstock impact the life of a grapevine? And I guess the second part is how does that tie together with the challenges you're facing with climate change in South Africa? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think rootstock is still still being experimented in South Africa. Um, I think all those very vigorous rootstocks that we used to plant, we don't plant anymore. Um, but I think, the, I think the, the, the meaningful understanding is to understand rootstock and clones, to, to understand what actually works together and what works together in what region. Um, and I think since we've changed the, the way we look at the clones, we had to start changing the way we look at the rootstock. So that was always like kind of the first change came in. I'll give you an example, like, you know, if we're tasting Pinot or, or Chardonnay. Um, with Chardonnay, we realized there was, there was some good clones, but we had the one clone CY95 that's been planted in South Africa for a long time. And out of that one, we actually realized it's, it's maybe been the one that's been the less affected by, by virus. And, and so by cleaning up through the nurseries, it's been a very valuable clone. But it seems to not love very vigorous rootstock. So you go back for your classic 101.14s, that type of... Um, on one one ten also, so that's been the thing. I think with rootstocks, the most important thing is is that you look at rootstock that's not too vigorous, that has, is kind of drought resistant. That's a very important thing. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that's kind of been where we've been going with it. Um, 
<laughs> I think like many countries, we've also sat with rootstocks that came from the wrong place. You know, like like <laughs> I think with uh, Cabernet, it was some some German rootstock, and there was some Italian rootstock for for Merlot and things like this, which which didn't have an happy ending and, and I think so that that's been important but I think the most important thing is that they must be drought resistant and not be too vigorous I think that's been the most important thing so, so you dropped a, 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 what was the clone you just mentioned for Chardonnay um, CY95 CY95 yeah okay so I, I guess this is just a, another like yeah. nice reminder that South Africa is basically an old world growing region even though I yeah. think it's it's often lumped together with new world but when you're dealing with clones and let's let's talk about Chardonnay and Pinot Noir mm. specifically because that's what's in our glass. Um, are, are are you dealing with Burgundy clones or, or or Californian clones, or is it the industry so old that you have your own South African indigenous clones that you're seeing evolve with the climate? I think I think the you know I mean we always refer to where the clone originates from. Um, so like. If you if you think of Pinot, I mean, we still say one one five clones that we love now, and one one three or one one five A and B. It depends. Triple um, seven, some people like. I don't love it too much in our area. We we're too warm. Um, okay. Even though we coastal, we still too warm. I think the conditions are too mild, so it loses it it, it loses a little bit of that perfume. Oh, come it on, becomes, it, but it would no, be, look, be a nice blending. Component. No, no, I, I love I love the clone. Just don't planted get, at the top of the no, hill. Yeah, yeah. No, I, look, we plant a bit of it, but I I realize now that I've, we have more success with one one five because of the thicker skins. Um, it doesn't seem to be so UV sensitive. Um, yeah, so um, so that is. I guess new Burgundy clones, if you refer to that, um, and but I think the problem, the mo- most important thing is that it's been planted here, that the, the the nurseries have worked with it long enough, and that there's a bit of a history before it's actually introduced within the industry. So we use a lot of those type of clones. I mean, we went, we tasted Semion. Now Semion is a very interesting story because a lot of the the, the first Semion we tasted was Semion and Souvenir. That is like that's a Davis clone of Semion. So that is very aromatic, big berries. Um, it rots quickly. You have to pick it early. Then you take the old vine Semion. We don't even know what the clone is because it's been in the country for since the end of the 1600s, and a lot of that Semion has mutated to Semion Gris. We're only now figuring out that we we have no reference for that vines. So we don't know. Where it I, comes I, from. I love I, that's that's one of my favorite things. like like especially in Niagara when you're walking through the Pioneer vineyards where it's just like you know Irv Wilms for example hey Irv what clone of Chardonnay do you have planted no oh, idea yeah no idea yeah but I, I I find it a lot of a lot of fun that he's talking that you know he's talking about a clone that's been around in the country since the 1600s I love that like I, that's that's amazing that that one they know that hmm. and two that that they've They've. What are you pointing at? You're pointing your empty. Your empty Pinot glass. That look. I, I. I'm trying to figure out. You know. Do you know how when you're talking about Pinots and Chardonnays, you always try to, um, you know, distinguish where it's from. And uh, I, if you put that in front of me, I would tell you that it is probably Pinot. Like I would have said probably Pinot. But if you asked me where it was from, I'd be like, I have no idea. I'm going to pay you a compliment, but this is Cote de Nuit. This is like a really, really nice, like a Nuit Saint-Georges. Like this is, this is a, it's a, lo- it's a lovely, I couldn't, I was writing all kinds of notes to it. But, but like, like, it's, 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 it's brooding, but you still have this fantastic acid. There's like this tension on your, on your palate yeah, about like, 
it's it's not overly ripe. This is wherever this is planted, the grapes are meant to be there. Well, you yeah. said it's three kilometers from the ocean. Yeah, um, so it's it's got that that uh, I'm sure you got great diurnal uh, shifts. temperature shifts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm assuming cool nights to get that kind of acidity. Um, but there's this great spice that hit me first, and then, then it was the earthiness that hit me probably again on the second or third sip, which definitely told me it was Pinot. Yeah. But then there's that cran- that, that cranberry black cherry that kind of mixes itself in. There's yeah, I was getting like ripe black currant and like yeah. it's it's full on like it's, that perfect ripe cherry in the spring. You pop it in your mouth and it just explodes in your mouth. It's earthy, but it's not predominantly earthy. It's It's just kind of... Hanging around in the background, going, "I'm Pino, but you know, let me show you some other signs that I'm I can be." All, all right, you said else. you had an affection for Burgundy. I'm, I'm yeah. guessing it's more towards Pinot than Chard. Yeah, look, I mean, I I, I think it's both, but uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but if um, oh, I see, I see. But if I if I if I had to buy only one wine, if I took only one wine to to an an, an, an island, then I think I would take. Uh, Something from Northern Burgundy, that's it for sure. And, um, but yeah, so I mean, I love Pinot, and um, we obviously with with Pinot there. It's, uh, I mentioned the one one five clone earlier on. Um, yeah, we do. Uh, I do quite a nice component of whole bunch within the Pinot, um, but uh, we have uh, old open fermenters. These open fermenters were built in eighteen hundred and ninety three, so it's very ancient open fermenters. Uh, we take each fermenter takes about three and a half tons. We uh, throw the whole bunches in, we stamp them with feet, we destem on top, and we do a classic fermentation naturally and spontaneously, and, and then malolactic in oak. And um, I sometimes use a bit of uh, 600 liters um, demimuit, so these uh, ones that come from Austria by a company named Stockinger. Um, and I think, I think really that sometimes those barrels tend to not polish the pinot too much, they tend to keep a bit more of the tension in the wine. and yeah, it's a, a, a Pinot is, is fun. You know, it's a, it's a great variety. But um, uh, like you mentioned, it's I think earlier on you mentioned how difficult Merlot is to make. <laughs> so Pinot is the same. You must accept the fact that in a difficult vintage, you bottle very little amounts of Pinot, and that is that should always be your kind of approach. Yeah. Well, and, and before we move on to Porcupine Ridge, like I love that you talked about the oak treatment and you know the, the way you treat this wine in the cellar. Uh, tannins soft and well integrated so I mean clear it's clear that you're not aggressive with pump overs or punch overs but like what you said about oak completely went over my head because it's not reflected in the wine it's such a like pure expression yeah, of good, a pure you know, expression like, of, uh, fruit more than than anything else there so we're gonna move into two so there we go I, I know this wine yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna move into two or we are gonna move into two LCBO brands they're pretty much uh, on the LCBO shelves almost year-round. One of them for sure. I think Porcupine yeah, Ridge for list. sure. And uh, the, the Chocolate Block will be the next one that we go with. Um, and both of them are on the LCBO all the time. Is it Vintage is Essential? I'm talking to Andre like the waiter coming over to your table and you just put the whole big bite of food so in your por- mouth. So Porcupine Ridge is um, a general list. Yeah. I know because I did that for my monthly Cellarit series. Yeah. Um, and the chocolate block, where does that fit into the whole... I'm taking a look here. Oh, actually, sorry. It looks like Porcupine Ridge has been moved to Essentials. Yeah, I thought it was a vintage essential. And then the chocolate block is uh, not to be confused with the chocolate factory. Which is another fantastic Syrah that I love. Yeah, so... Chocolate block is... Oh, 
You guys sell it in Magnum. Oh, well then. Look if at this you, wine man. is good, I might have to. So it doesn't look like it's available right now. So it looks like it is. So it's one of those ro- ro- rolling, uh, rolling its uh, vintages releases. So uh, this this is the one that most people would would recognize uh, from uh, Boca Notes Club. And um, <laughs> do you want to? Uh, I love wanna... that you're not even going to try to no, pronounce not, it right. Not doing it. Uh, I'm not falling into your ruse. Uh, what? Of, Just, uh, I'm going to make um, fun. I'm going to make fun of you for something else. <laughs> correct. Well, uh, well, you know, I did the little Chardonnay bit, so I'm sure we'll get on to something else for you shortly. Um, tell us a little bit about Porcupine Ridge, but I, I, I hate to, I hate to say this, and I I'm going to get in trouble. I know Andre's going to clip this out. I'm sure. I've I've done an, another tasting with with your predecessor. I know I did. I'm um, Mark Kane. Yeah. I'm yeah, pretty he's sure still he was. There. He's, just, uh, uh, he's just not yet in Canada yet this Correct. week. But, yeah, yeah. but I mean, uh, <laughs> I know I, I was at a tasting, and I, I, I fell in love with a lot of your wines and at that time. And I remember going to the tasting going, oh, these are the guys that do Chocolate Blanc and Porcupine Ridge. I don't know if I'm going to be that excited by it. I was excited by all your other wines. Yeah. And the ones, and I think it's a, sh- I'm, I'm, I guess I'm taking a shot at the LCBO. There are, they oh. have such better wines on their portfolio and the lcbo has taken like gottfried i i I do want to swing the question to you after this but i don't want you to say anything bad about the lcbo because i know how important they are as a partner and how important it is for your business to do business with the lcbo but we you and i have talked about this in the past that it is a challenge for people who really care about wine to get into south africa because when you walk through the LCBO, the general list of South Africa is occupied by mass-produced wines that... Taste you know, like rubber tire. Well, and frankly, are, are hurting the reputation of a region. And even then, when you take a look at the vintages section, it's very rare that you see a wide selection of premium wines that work their way through. And like you and I are, are lucky. Uh, I hope you get along with the people, but like the Russell Hamilton wines, because of I4C that we get a mm. chair, Hamilton Russell... I can't remember the name of there, but either way, like they're wines that I look forward to spending and I think are well worth the money at $68. But it's also, there's got to be something in between an $8 mm-hmm. bottle of, of Two Oceans and a $70 bottle of Pinot and, and Chardonnay. Like you've got to have something different in there. So I, I guess the question I want to swing to you, and, and Michael, if you want to add to this before Gottfried answers, is it's just like, what is the big challenge in the Canadian market to get those intermediate wines to us. Well, what I what I was trying to get to before I was rudely interrupted by Sorry, Andre Michael. with a with his I got to jump in here and 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 cock block you is um, why is it like and I guess it's it is my shot at the LCBO. Why do they take these wines over you know the that Pinot was great, the Chardonnay was great. Um, you have you I know you do you do a, a a, a number of cabs and Shiraz. You have so many great wines in the portfolio, and yet the LCBO seems to, you know, gravitate towards these. I don't know. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I just know that um, South Africa as a as a category, um, it's 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 very challenging. Um, I think we 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 one of the few wineries that's. I think because historically Canada has always been kind to us, and the people of Canada has been kind to our wines, and and so um, we haven't we've 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 put a lot into it, and um, but it's a challenge, the South Africa. I mean, it's just um, we have great wines and and things, but you know, it's it's still not 
Yeah, I, I, mean, I think the big thing is we're not always taken seriously. Um, and, um, and yeah, so you're always standing in the end of the line sometimes. You know, that's some of the feelings we get. And, um, and I think South Africa is, I think what makes it sometimes difficult, if you look at, if you look at a country like Argentina, you, people think immediately Malbec. Yep. So when there's a Malbec on the shelf, that's Argentina. You know, when you think of, of, of Souvenir Blanc or something, you think New Zealand. They fill that gap, you know. I mean, New World Chardonnay has become Margaret River, you know, and things like this. So, so Africa is difficult because yeah. we somehow standing with one foot in the old world and another foot in the new world. Well, we're creating wines that are so diverse and so different. And I, I th- I, well, if, if somebody had asked me what the, what the problem with South Africa is, is that years ago you guys said, yeah, Pinotage is the way to go. And uh, no, uh, we don't was, like a drop of pinotage. It was, it was not. It was uh, you know. And then I remember a few years ago, it was all the coffee wines that everybody wanted to make pinotage, and and you know the barista and the whatever the other the ones that. Well, I mean that combined with like the like the, the cheap entry level wines too certainly doesn't help. So. Well, they were cheap and like I mean the yeah. the barista and and the whatever the coffee maker or whatever the heck they always made was. You know, twelve, thirteen dollar wines. That you know, I guess if your if your goal was to cut out breakfast, coffee, and have a glass of wine, then they were perfect uh, mm-hmm. for that moment. Uh, or you or you wanted a segue from you know coffee and at lunchtime have a glass of wine that still reminded you of coffee. Mm-hmm. They were perfect, and I think that's South Africa really really hugged Pinotage close to their heart, and that seems to be what the LCBO took a lot of. And well, I, mean, I think the, I think just like Ontario has its its nasty past of of baby duck, I think here in Ontario, I, I guess we have long memories, uh, and we go, yep, I don't want any you know dodge. I'm not going to the South African section. Okay, okay. Well, let's. Like, I guess maybe let's pivot like a, a, a tiny bit on that because I guess the other problem with the LCBO is it's sales driven how they make their buying decisions and they're reactive. I think it's it's the biggest shame that the LCBO is facing in 2023, especially with the current batch of buyers that they have, is we do not have courageous or interesting buyers. Once again, Gottfried, you don't have to say anything to this. This is my uh, critique as a journalist. And Michael, I'm, no, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I think you'd agree that the selection from the LCBO, especially since George Soleus has taken over, has become abysmal and significantly less interesting. And I yes. will be talking about that more and more. But let's let's give it to you, Gottfried, so we can turn this on to a positive if your experience with the LCBO has been Pinotage or entry level, what do you want to say to them about a wine like Porcupine Ridge, which I, I enjoyed? Michael, did, your thoughts? It was it was fine. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it, but but I mean, I mean it's I'm also look, a seventeen dollar bottle of wine. But I'm looking at the at the four that we had before that, and I'm like, wow. And then I get the Porcupine Ridge, and I go, ah, okay, okay, okay. I but, can find that anywhere. Okay, but let's let's contextualize it though. Is the seventeen ninety five Porcupine Ridge is still a step up from the two oceans that we see on every bus it, shelter in in the city? It, it, it is yes, and it, there's it a big gap. And there's a big gap between eighteen dollars for Porcupine Ridge and seventy or sixty eight dollars for the the Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. I, I get it, I get it, but I you know I could, okay. I could find that Syrah <laughs> anywhere. Uh, yes, but and I'm and I'm tasting the chocolate block, and I'm having the same kind of reaction. It's a it's a it's a red wine. Like it's it's nice red wine. I'm going to be kinder to the the Porcupine Ridge that I think for eighteen dollars it's not a Vin de Garde. It doesn't belong in a cellar. I still maintain that, even though Chris Waters of the Globe and Mail has said that he keeps this in his cellar. So shout out to Chris. But 
what would you want to say to our listeners about Porcupine Ridge and that point above the entry yeah, level? Yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, for me, Porcupine Ridge, uh, Sierra, I think it's a real honest uh, example, a pure example of Sierra from the region, the Swartland. You know, the Swartland region is is a very dry region, a lot of schist and, and kind of these iron-rich soils. And with this one, we really want to make shows the, the classic Veralta character of the region and a variety that's been there for, for a very, very long time. Um, and the inspiration of wine is really to make something that is a bit more, in a, I guess, in the spirit of a Coterin, you know, where it's a bit... Uh, we, don't, we don't use any oak much on this, so it's just really old-seasoned oak, and we use some big concrete and things like this, and kind of because it's a hot region, so the, you, have ten, you tend to have low tannins, so we want to make a style of wine where it's about kind of keeping a bit more tension and keeping nervousness in the wine. Um, and, you know, for, for us, it's, 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 it's special because, I mean, it comes from a region that was a region that was only cooperative area. Nobody was farming. This was the first... We were the first people to put... To take the Boulder brand out of that area region and make it. I mean, it's. I'm. I think. <laughs> I like the style. I think this is really what we like to do. We love Sierra, and this is what we like to do. And I know we talked yeah. about the end of summer here, but like for me, this is like a perfect simple barbecue with friends. It is. A, it's uh, a, it is a simple barbecue wine. Yeah. I just. I guess I'm. I am trying to compare it to the stuff that came before, and that it. It kind of. If we had started with that, I would have gone. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Nice. So we so we did things backwards. Yeah. yeah that's okay. Well, I'm actually you know like we we've mentioned that the big price difference. I mean, you, you go from Pinot to that or to chocolate block, it's always going to be yeah. quite a quite I, a I shift actually was there. surprised by the the chocolate block because like you you mm. said the word Rhone, so you said the word Rhone, yeah. not us. And when you said the word Rhone, I hadn't thought about Porcupine Ridge, but I really thought that the Porcupine Ridge had the same vibe as some entry level entry level Rhone. Quote I, did, I, did not, I did not. Okay, and the chocolate block, I felt the same thing. It's it it feels a little bit like a giganda, like a quite a bit of like juiciness on it, a little bit more opulent. Um, you know, once again, like not the most complex wine on the planet, but definitely a little bit of cellarability, maybe mm. two or three years. Oh, I think it's got more than that to it. It's, it's well, there we go. Now, but, now I get to be the one that's the bad guy. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, look, this is a uh, this is a a wine that has uh, like the kitchen sink thrown at it. It's got Syrah, it's got Grenache, it's got Cinso, it's got Cabernet. And then there's this little little touch of uh, of Viognier that slips in there as well. Uh, so it does, and uh, you know it, it it has that taste and feel of a of a field blend. There's not one. Granted, Syrah is supposed to be the the dominant characteristic here, but I think there is a a, a nice feel of uh, of a lot of uh, flavors. Is it uh, worth here. 40, is it worth forty two bucks to you? Is that how much it is these days? Yep. The chocolate block is now $42. Okay, thank you, LCBO. Moving on. <laughs> I just want to come back to the wine quickly. Please, um, so it's always five varieties yeah. uh, since the day one. And, um, and what we um, – it, it was always in the old days a negotiant wine. So we, we made – you know, we had vineyard contracts and we had wine. And, and in 2010, we invested into our a property in the Swartland called Porcelainberg. And we're going to taste some wines from this property after this wine. Um, and then another two properties, uh, which we are two of the three properties are now organically certified, and the one the other one is in conversion. Um, and and I think it just gave us to create a style that's a real classic example of the Swartland. We always thought the secret to this one was the fact that it had to be a blend, and we we only blend the varieties kind of more 
at the end of the elevation or end of the aging time, so about 12, 14 so months. The, the varieties are all vinified separately separate because of the picking window. You pick Syrah, you pick Senso at different times. So we don't. Um, and uh, and everything adds something. I mean, Senso, for a lot of people, they think when you say the word Senso, they think of a rose or, or something. For us, Senso in the Swartland is important. It's a bit like working with Alicante Boucher in Spain or in Portugal. It makes it Venus, it makes it approachable. And we, we do and don't add a lot of Cabernet in it anymore, but I just think it adds a bit of that kind of bit of that tannin and a bit of the acidity and. And lifts it a bit, and but it's based on Syrah. I mean, Syrah is what the Swatland does well. It's the longest established variety in that region, and so it's very well suited and adapted. And um, this is obviously 2021, so it's kind of a nice, uh, still quite a fresh vintage. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing is of Chocolate Block. I mean, the brand. No, a lot of people don't even know it's from Buchenholzkloof. Yeah. A lot of people tasted this wine before they even thought they're tasting wine from South Africa. Yeah. Um, so I, it it. The, the, brand, can, the it, branding it, looks Californian. Yeah, but, it does. but the wine has done a lot for the South Africa. It's opened the, the category for South Africa and a lot of countries where nobody was interested in even tasting wine from South Africa. So it's, 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 a, it's a lot more to this brand than people think. And um, if we, we're currently doing a million bottles of wine of chocolate block. Uh, which is still on allocation. So it's been it's been just amazing to us. I mean, it's just been so good. I want I want to go back to that price. Did you say it's now forty? Is that that's got to be the uh, that's the magnum? No, forty two ninety five is the last vintage. The twenty twenty one is forty two ninety five. Unbelievable! That came in, if I remember correctly, at twenty four ninety five. You know, that's something that you and I are going to have to dig into, though, because there are some shenanigans happening with what's happening to. Pricing. Oh, there's lots of shenanigans going on. Right uh, now. Yeah, I mean, just regards to freight that. Freight has gone down in every other vertical in the world, except mm. apparently. Anyways, separate topic. Don't want to get you in trouble, Gottfried. Yeah, uh, sorry, I know we're already towing, towing <laughs> the line here. You're gonna, you got a guy's gonna be the reason I need to flate Canada <laughs> yeah. the next day. Well, you, well, you, know, you know what? I actually Look, there's I, still I, the SAQ. Look, uh, <laughs> I, I, I appreciated your your reaction when I talked about the entry level at, at South Africa at, at South Africa as well, because I think it's something that we can relate with as Canadians is when we talk about the Canadian wine industry abroad, a lot of people, the initial instinct is ice wine. So like to taste these higher end wines is a real pleasure, which is I think a perfect segue to the, the Syrah that Mm. we're tasting right now where I just want to go. I just want to drink this whole bottle. My, my eyebrow went straight up. And once again, like it's a story of, of minerality. And I think it's even a minerality that you don't Mm. usually find in the Rhone wines. Um, It's almost like there is, the soul of, of Burgundy mm. in this Syrah, but the mm. ripeness of the like the mid to southern Rhone, like this is yeah. this is glorious. And at like sixty eight bucks, like I would love to have this in my house and in my cellar. I I, I think um, when I first met you, I said that I had, I had tasted some uh, just recently some older bottles. I think from the fifteen vintage, if if memory serves, of that Syrah, and it was absolutely beautiful. You must tell me, how what was the twenty twenty vintage like in in South Africa? No, it, it 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 was a good vintage. It was maybe back one of the more normal vintages again. You know, we had a we had a difficult sixteen vintage after fifteen was great. Difficult sixteen because of the drought. Um a very classic seventeen vintage. Um and then twenty for me was kind of the normal vintage. The vintages I, I kind of remember um pre two thousand fifteen, which was a good vintage, a nice um a nice accessible vintage also it shows um it's 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 got a, it's got a nice complexity or like austerity and attention on the mid palate 
but if you look at the nose, the nose is already can be already a bit more approachable. Um, but uh, I think what's important, Syrah comes from uh, from vineyards that we planted, like on a t- basically on the top of a mountain called Porcelainberg. Um, and Porcelainberg is, uh, um, it's these vineyards are all planted on mica schist. It's like a blue schist. Um, um, it's it's very brutal place to farm a vineyard. Um, the bunches are very small, small berries. Um, yields very seldom exceed um, five tons a hectare. Mm. Um, and... Um, so we obviously use quite a lot of whole bunch fermentation within the Syrah because um, the, t- the stems and stuff just gives a bit of that kind of tension and a bit of purity. And, and we don't use any French barrique. We only use um, Fudra, which is this 2,500-liter um, Austrian um, Stockinger. Um, so we really see more the, the oaking as a, as a vehicle for élevage then some are trying to try and manipulate it. I mean, at Bukenhuis you see, we only refer to Syrah. Uh, we were the first to really focus on making classic Syrah-style wines and not doing Shiraz, which was kind of the new old yep. thing, you know. Um, and, yeah, so... Yeah, I, I, I think, like, the word Shiraz needs to be erased from the global vocabulary unless you're Australian at this yeah. point, I think. This, this is this has uh, got a lovely juiciness. Oh, it, man. It, it kind of... It does. It kind of. It it, it kind of straddles the line between something Australian with all that lovely fruit that it has, but yeah, also that Rhone Valley, you know, austerity minerality. Uh, there's some real. I I really again. I love this wine. I I think I think I. I, I Would I, you spend sixty eight dollars on it, Michael? Well, you know my philosophy on wine. That's so. not what I asked you. Uh. I, I'm, I might dip into my pocket for it. Now that's high praise because yeah. Michael's philosophy is there's not much <laughs> worth more than thirty bucks. So, but that's no, yeah, thank I do, you. I do <laughs> love this wine. So, so now we are going to go into this one, which is uh, Godfrey. Why don't you just introduce this one completely? <laughs> you don't want to try so, um, the Dutch name. Wait. Porcelainberg. 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 Perfect. Sounds. I'm just being nice to him. No, no, but I, it's he, you, it's he gets you it right. Him, he gets it right. I was. It's because you met him, him first. That's why. <laughs> we have. We've had some practice. Holy no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, the uh, the concentration on the nose is it's jumping out of the glass. So what? So what is this? What is Porcelainberg? So. Page when 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 um, for when Mark Kent um, um, found this farm in the Swartland called Porcelainberg, it was a it was in a very bad state, but it was a very old vineyard of Syrah on the property, and um, and it was actually um, some of the vines um, you know were lost in a fire, um, and they made two barrels of wine from this vineyard, and it was so amazing. Um, and, and he ended up buying the property, and, and we started the whole replanting program. And from the old vineyard, they did a bit of Marsal selection. They interplanted. They created this vineyard, this slope against the Swatland. And this single site um, became this wine. So it's a single site. It's a wine where it's about showing that the address and where it's from. Um, and on the property itself, between the vineyards, uh, he bought a little cellar. The, the farmer there, his name is Kali Lowe, also actually makes the wine there on the property. 
um, that, that previous wine tasting, the other Syrah is also from the farm, but it's from the vineyards we planted around 2010. Um, those vineyards are the ones we tasted previously. These are from the old site. Um, and this wine is, the idea of this wine was to do a full non-interventional style of Syrah, uh, where it's 100, there's no distemmer or anything in the winery. It's a whole bunch, 100% whole bunch, um, only fermented in concrete, a component in concrete eggs, the rest is in fudra. Elevage is short, only 12 months. Um, and just a very pure example of that very specific site. It's a very special place. Um, it's a very individual style of Syrah. What are your um, yields like on this site? Like, no, they're also low. It's like four tons uh, hectare. It's it's just w- there's a lot of bunches on the vine. Okay. It, it hits the stats, but when you actually weigh a bunch, I mean, I, I some vintage I weigh a bunch and it's like 180 to 200 grams per bunch. Yeah, like th- this just it's like it's it like tastes a, like, it tastes like tiny berries. Like you're yeah. getting. So like, you said old site. What's the year on the old site? I no, I think the vineyard is now just under 38 years or so. 38? Yeah, 38. But we've interplanted a lot of out of the old block. So it's a. <laughs> I think the average age of the vine, I would say, would be like, let's say, 25 years or so. Yeah. Do, and do you guys know what clones are in this vineyard, or is it a free for all? No, this is old um, SH1 clone, which is the original South African Syrah clone. Um, the Australians, uh, I think they maybe chucked us a few vines on their way mm-hmm. to Australia. Um, but anyway, so it's an old clone, and it's a, it's a, it's a classic clone of the region. Um, and yeah, so, but it's just an amazing um, site. It's actually, funny enough, it's a very warm site. It's a, not even a very cool site where the Bukhanaskluwa vineyards are, that we have in the previous wine are more cooler sites around it. And there you see the wines are obviously much more much shyer. It's more it's it's it wait it needs more time to open up. Where this is immediately shows. Oh, I didn't even I didn't even think about that. Like the, the the tannins are so short and well integrated. This is drinking easy right now, but like it's it's got the concentration and the density mm. that I think I think I think this might be like that uh, Australian wine you brought for me earlier this year. Was it the Quintus? Oh, the the what is it? Twenty year old, thirty year old. Bottle of is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, that was that was a nice wine too. I I can't believe that it's only like September mm. and I've forgotten the wine already because that was a highlight of the year. Well, I, I, what I I'm I'm kind of because now that I, I'll, I'll let you know, Andre on on the sheet it does not say Syrah anywhere. So it, it tastes like Syrah. But I, I that's why I said what exactly is is I was wondering if it was a blend. But now I'm starting to compare it to the previous Syrah. This yeah. one seems a little denser, a little earthier, a little drier, a little smokier. Than the than the than the previous um, than the previous Syrah. so there's definitely a uh, a, a place for it, and I, I think and, as and, we go and, through the afternoon, we should taste them side by side and see how they open. Well, and I also think it's it's fascinating too because like you've talked quite a bit about your your oak programming, but I haven't even thought about your your oak program at all. Like I really think the only wine on the table that we've tasted that showed oak is the first Semillon, and I think that's by design hmm. uh like based on what you've said and i'm curious to see also how that might evolve over the afternoon or with some time in the cellar but like yeah, like none, none of my notes say oak like a lot of oak characteristics which is which is really a a, a, a tip of the cap yes. uh or a tip of the cape uh that i'm done uh to you that uh, none of these wines show any kind of that oak influence and i think that's really that really is a, a beautiful because i love you know wine is is uh, grapes or fruit and okay show fruit most than anything so we've got a lot of syrah on the table mm. 
you, you mentioned that as a winemaker, you have an affection for Burgundy with the Pinot Noir and the Chardonnay. You mentioned an affection for the, the Semillon because of the age of the vines and some of the history. With so it. Andre's going to ask, what are we missing? No, I guess the question I'm going to question I'm going to ask is like I said, like we're in a position where, for, as a yeah. South African, I think you're hoping to change market perception here. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to this podcast and you're going to the LCBO or you're waiting for vintages or you're contacting the the agent to order a bottle of wine, what do you? And I'm not asking you to to try to guess what my answer is, but like, what do you hope the listeners will pick up? Like, what do you what 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 would you be most proud if you heard? Your next visit, someone who heard this podcast is just like, Gottfried, I listened to you on Two Guys Talking Wine. You said I should pick up this. I'm really happy you said this. You know what? I I, I think firstly for this whole um, chat we just had is that people realize that there's a hell of a lot more to South Africa than this perception that our wines are cheap and cheerful. You know, that we actually... We really think about what we're doing. We are serious about wines. As a winemaker and, and the team I work with, we all we see ourselves as a lifelong students of wine. We can't learn and experience more enough about wine. If you come to our tasting room, you see we spend our money on drinking big bottles. We believe you can't make great wine, don't know what great wine tastes like. And, and I want people to walk away and just go and say, you know what, I'm going to buy a bottle of Cap Maritime Pinot Noir and give it a shot and see but you know, that's fun. You know, that's a fun wine to drink. It's got a story to tell. It's got a background. It's got individuality. It's got character. And I think, I think for me, just I just want people to think a little bit differently how they see our wines. Because, you know, in, in the world, people drink South African wines because they visited South Africa. I want people to drink South African wines because it's known for making great wine. For some, and that's, that's our mission. Yeah. I really appreciate the passion. And Michael and I are really lucky to have had a chance to taste these wines. I appreciate you uh, putting up with our fair criticism uh, of, of some of the wines, and I want to thank you very much for giving us the time and sharing these with us. Thank you for putting it up with us. <laughs> now, dude, I, I need to bring you guys down to Africa. We're I'm gonna, I'm gonna, anytime. I'm going I'm to give you my Seahawks generous spirit. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it, and it was, it was fun. It was really fun having this chat. Thank Thanks, you. guys. I'm impressed that uh, Gottfried let us get a little controversial and uh, was forthright in his opinion. It, it's... It's refreshing when we get a chance to do real criticism because I, I think we're in a world right now where so much of the wine content is just fluff. And I know... Did he? Well, I mean, he certainly didn't shy away when you told him to his face that you weren't crazy about some of those wines. Oh, oh. I thought you meant like when we started to badmouth the LCBO or something. We badmouth the LCBO? I thought we were being honest. Oh, we just always badmouth the LCBO, so... Um, you know what? Once again, thanks to Van Dandran for setting up the interview. A special thanks to our sponsor, Valdoka. That's, yeah, that's, some, that's some good sparkling. <laughs> I'm Andre Prue from AndreWineReview.ca and follow me on social media is at AndreWineReview. And I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. You can follow me mostly as the Grape Guy. Oh, I know. I'm MichaelPincusWineReview.com. Oh, and good. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.